1: Amid the plush gold curtains and sparkling chandeliers of the White House's East Room, Joe Biden took off his mask as he walked to the lectern. It was February 28th this year, a reception to mark the end of Black History Month. And apart from the president, as he gave his remarks, everyone else was wearing a mask. Just one day later, on March the 1st, it felt like a different reality. At President Biden's State of the Union address, only a handful of attendees wore face coverings. After the speech, the 79-year-old president mingled with the maskless scrum that surrounded him, kissing cheeks, grasping hands and whispering in ears. There was science behind this. Changes to the Centre for Disease Control Guidance on when masks were needed came into effect at the beginning of March. It was also convenient timing. At his big moment, the president could show that the pandemic, if not over, was entering a different stage. But a sunnier outlook can't change a sobering fact. America has the highest COVID death rate among all rich countries, nearly double the average. I'm John Prideau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, How did America get its COVID-19 response so wrong? It's just over two years since the World Health Organization declared that the COVID-19 outbreak was a pandemic. Even cautious Democrats are feeling confident that a new, less severe phase is upon us. But depending on how you measure it, America has just passed or is about to hit a horrendous milestone. One million of its citizens dead from the coronavirus. In a moment that's both optimistic and sombre, it's time to take stock. How did America handle the COVID-19 pandemic? With me to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and Idris Kaloun, the Washington correspondent. And for once, we're all in the same room, which is very nice. Charlotte, what's going on on your side of the table?
2: (laughs) This is very unsettling. I prefer to see you across an ocean virtually. Uh, it's great to be with you both. Excited to have Idris here formally.
1: Yes, regular podcast listeners, of course, will be familiar with Idris's voice. But From here on, he's going to be a regular panelist, along with John Fazman and Charlotte. So that's terrific. Thanks. I'm, I'm super excited to, to be doing this. Idris, how are you doing? How are you finding New York? I know you're a frequent visitor.
3: Well, I was horrifically late to our in-person shindig. I gave myself 30 minutes to take a 15-minute cab ride, and I ended up being 15 minutes late, which is not the latest I've ever been. The latest I've ever been in was an interview in Cairo. I was
1: two hours late, but the guy was completely unperturbed. As were you. So uh, thanks for that. My tip to getting around New York on time is basically to attach yourself to Charlotte, who's able to walk around without ever pausing at a traffic light (laughs) by operating some brain algorithm. I think only comes if you've evolved on the pavements or rather sidewalks of New York.
2: This is one of my hidden talents. We know what my failures are, but crossing New York City streets in record time is uh, something I excel at.
3: It's like Hawaiian children learn to surf before they can walk. Mongolian children could like ride a horse before they could walk. Charlotte could and your kids will be able to do this as well. It's
1: truly an impressive skill. OK, I thought that this would be a good time to look back at the COVID-19 pandemic and how America handled it. I mean, it's really striking compared with my last visit in New York. The city seems to have just decided that it's over. Last time I was here, people were wearing masks in public. That's all gone. You know, bars, restaurants open. Normal life seems pretty much to have resumed. The subway's packed. That's great to see. At the same time, America is you know, about to pass or perhaps has already passed, we think has already passed a million deaths from COVID-19. We spent the past two years really discussing public policy, what the right responses were, what the wrong responses were, how America differed or didn't from other countries, particularly other rich countries. And it just seemed like a good moment to take stock of all of that. I began by talking to Sandre Solstad, who's a data journalist at The Economist, and built our excess mortality tracker, which we think is the most reliable measure of how many people have actually died of COVID-19 in America. I asked him to explain the difference between how the CDC calculates the numbers and how we do it. CDC numbers are based on confirmed deaths, which
4: are usually people who test positive for COVID and then die or or are tested after they die and and then are confirmed that way. Uh, What we instead operate with is excess deaths, which is the number of deaths beyond what you would expect in a normal year. And we think that this number is better both theoretically and practically. So practically, because you don't need to rely on this testing, which isn't extensive in, in all countries. And, and even in the United States, it's, it's not the case that everyone are tested all the time. And conceptually, because it captures things like deaths due to people not seeking healthcare or fewer deaths because people don't, uh, I don't know, die in traffic. Though actually, I think more people die in traffic, sadly, because there's fewer people on the roads and they drive faster.
1: And in terms of excess deaths in America, if you Remember, right back at the beginning of this pandemic, there was a debate about whether the death toll would be higher in America because of the wider incidence of pre-existing conditions, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, other things like that in America. In your view, does the excess death tracker that you've built, does that suggest that was the case? Or is it more a question of America doing a worse job of controlling COVID-19? Than other countries or is it, is it really both of those things
4: I think that remains an open question as far as I can tell the main driver of, of that is just how many people are infected um, and you see this to some extent just in in how closely the two match controlling for for age which would be the big explainer of, of how many people die in a given population. But the jury is still a bit out on these pre-existing conditions in the sense that we know that they matter a lot. Um, But it's just very hard to tease out if the number of deaths you observe in America are, are due to these or just more people getting the disease, because we honestly don't
1: know how many people have gotten the disease. And as you say, we focused on this excess death number, which seems to us to be the best way to judge how America has handled this this pandemic. What other numbers do you look at when you're trying to think about how well countries have done or or how poorly they fared over the course of the past two years? The other pieces of data that you can use is
4: more about contextualizing the death toll in America. And here, I think the main one would be the population adjusted infection fatality rate. So that is, if you took a random person from a given country how likely would that person be to die if they got COVID-19 and this just based on their age. And this varies tremendously between countries. So in Uganda, you, you have, you know, one tenth the rate of um, Italy and, you know, Japan is much higher than, uh, the United States, because people are much older there.
1: Can you just run that past me again? So you compare Ugandans and Japanese people of a similar age, and look at the chances of them dying of COVID nineteen if they contract the virus. Essentially, it's more about the distribution of people by age in the population and, and oh, I by see. sex.
4: So, if you took a random person from Japan, it's a pretty good chance that it's going to be a somewhat old person. Whereas if you did the same in Uganda, it's going to be a very young person.
1: That's interesting, because I would have thought on that basis that America would fare relatively poorly because of those pre-existing conditions we were talking about, and because of the public health problems in America that are quite well publicized. But actually, America's population on average is younger than the populations of most Western European countries, or pretty much all Western European countries I'm aware of. So, So on that score, you might expect America to do to do better on this metric.
4: Yes, indeed. Um, now, I was actually a bit surprised that the difference isn't greater. So I, I, I always thought of America as a very young country, but it is younger than the Western European countries. One um, thing that I also found interesting is that it matters not just how young the population is, but the distribution of age. So sort of having a few very young people and a few very old people is uh, way worse than having a lot of people who are middle age. Um, because the, the severity
1: of the disease increases um, so much as you get older. So taking all of those things together, how does America's record over the past year compare with other rich countries?
4: I would say it compares relatively poorly. So there are other things you could also mention, or perhaps that I should mention. So you could look at things like urbanization, how densely populated the country is, how many opportunities for transmission there are sort of in, in normal times, and, and what kind of healthcare capacity you might have. But, but generally, it hasn't done well at all. And it has more excess deaths per capita than the European Union, uh, than Britain, um, and indeed than most rich countries.
1: Idris, a year and a half ago, we had a cover story when America had just passed 100,000 deaths. And at the time, the commentary in America was, how come America this country with you know, all the most advanced healthcare research in the world, with the CDC, etc., has done so poorly. Our analysis was actually that if you contextualized the deaths in America on a you know, per person basis, things didn't look that much worse than in Western Europe, at least, and so it wasn't clear that America, despite the Trump administration failing in various ways, it wasn't clear that America had done worse than other places. Now, I think that has changed, right? A year and a half on. America's clearly done worse when it comes to excess deaths. How do you think it's sensible to judge a response to pandemic? I mean is it just that that single number that tells you everything you need to know? There are a whole load of decisions that policymakers were trying to make weighing you know, economic growth, unemployment versus lockdowns. How, how do you think, looking back on this what what do you think is a sort of sensible way to judge what the federal government, what state and local governments did or didn't do.
3: Yeah, I, I remember that piece well, because I, I read it. And I remember that at the time, it was hard to say that Trump had done a really bad job when basically every country in the world was struggling, you know, Macron was struggling in France, and uh, Boris Johnson was struggling with, um, with containing it in England. But what we've seen since is, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of astounded with the fact that more Americans have died of COVID since vaccines have been introduced than before. That, that's kind of astonishing in a country that developed the vaccines and probably administered them and made them widely available faster than, than other people. So I, I think that that alone is sort of an astonishing fact. I, I think the way that you judge it is, like Sandre was saying, you know, the amount of, of mortality after you adjust for the age of a population and all these other things, but after you adjust for, you know, the ease of access that Americans would have had to vaccines, I think it's remarkably poor showing that the death rate in America was twice as high as uh, other high-income countries, which is, again, you know, not, not the way I think it should have been.
2: I absolutely agree with that. I was looking at the graph that showed the vaccination rates over time. And you see, America, because of it, the early rollout of the vaccine and the degree to which the government was really trying to get people vaccinated, that we were getting more shots in arms earlier than other rich countries. And then they quickly surpassed us, other peers quickly surpassed us. And I find those graphs just to be remarkable. I think that another metric that I would judge our handling of COVID was on the balancing of priorities. Of keeping people safe, and particularly the treatment of children in schools. And I was always struck, as a parent myself, of the way in which we had much looser restrictions for adults doing recreational activities than we had for children in schools, that we applied our most stringent rules toward the classroom, keeping kids out of schools, shutting schools down when there were certain levels of transmission. And I think, to some extent, that was appropriate because, and certainly the goal was appropriate, which was to keep schools open and to keep them safe. But I'm not sure that we got the balance right. I think that our prioritization of having restaurants open and bars open, et cetera, but really keeping kids more uh, restrained and having a, a, a lower tripwire for closing down schools, I think that was probably a mistake.
1: I agree. That did seem very strange. We recorded a lot of podcasts while my kids were in school in the UK, but all the restaurants and things were closed. Whereas, you know, you in New York were able to go to a restaurant, but you had your, your children being homeschooled. The net result of that played out over the course of the pandemic is a lot of months of lost learning in in the US. That does seem like a real active foot shooting. At the same time, I sort of understand how America got that. You know, the absence of a unified federal and state um, response to COVID-19, I seem to mean that local authorities ended up controlling what they could control. And one lever they could pull was schools. And so they closed schools. I do think one thing that America did do well, though, was
3: the fiscal response. It really poured a lot of money into this, I mean, extraordinary amount relative to GDP, relative to even to other countries, which was pretty remarkable. And, and that staved off quite a lot of the possible economic fallout, like the poverty rate over the pandemic declined in this country as a result of those policies. A lot of things were tried out that I, I if you'd asked me so two years ago, what would America have done? I would have guessed that you know it would
1: have been kind of an emaciated response and it wasn't at all. We're talking now at a moment where it feels that this is a turning point, like COVID-19 in America is in the rearview mirror. But of course, people are still testing positive. There's the possibility, likelihood that the virus will mutate again. Maybe we'll get a worse strain, hopefully not. But it seems to me like even if that is the case, America is not going to you know, go back to lockdowns, um, go back to closing schools. I mean, it seems to me that whatever happens with the virus now, American society, American politicians have sort of decided that this thing is over. Well,
3: I think we thought that about a year ago as well. And then here we are now. But I I think there is a certain amount. Republicans have been over it for a long time. I think Democrats are just now getting there.
1: That seems to be the change now, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: I think when you have New York City, removing masks from schools, New York City being one of the more restrictive jurisdictions, I think that that's a pretty big shift politically, that that's going over well. And the question of whether it's over, I mean, I was just looking at the daily death numbers, and it's 1,500 people. It's high. That's really, really high. Two days of that, and you have the equivalent number of deaths as the people who passed away on nine eleven. So the fact that we're here and we're talking about this as being finished, potentially, is just a remarkable, remarkable fact. I think if you had told any of us at the beginning of 2020 that we'd be here and that the, what the next two years would look like, we would be shocked. So I think that there's an enormous amount of fatigue. Clearly, our ability to handle the virus has improved as, as testing has been more broadly disseminated. But I do think there's a lot of work still to do, which epidemiologists like Michael Osterholm have pointed to, that there's a lot of work to do still to incorporate the lessons from COVID-19 and bring them forward.
1: Yeah, when I say America's decided it's over, I think what I mean is America's decided that it's just going to live with a comparatively high death rate for the foreseeable future. And I think we might discuss in a little bit why it is, what it is about American society that means that in aggregate people are prepared to accept more deaths from COVID-19, more deaths from traffic accidents, more deaths from guns, um, etc., Okay, we'll look at how one particular state dealt with the pandemic in a moment. But first, to read and listen to everything The Economist does, you'll need a subscription. Economist.com slash USpod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. There was a strange sight in the parking lot that day. On the gray tarmac between the CVS, the Ghost Bed Mattress Shop, and Bin Planet discount store, a row of exercise bikes, some dumbbells, and a few cross-training machines were being used by the muscular clientele of the next-door gym, sweating outside in the sun rather than the cool of the usual air-conditioned retail unit. It was August 2020 in Plantation, Florida, and Fitness 1440's owner, Mike Carnavale had just spent a night in jail for the second time. He'd continually refused to follow a law set by Broward County that masks should be worn inside gyms at all times.
4: So the COVID-19 mandate that I uh, broke or didn't follow was one that was very anti-science of them to enforce to begin with. It was facial coverings during strenuous fitness activities. I think using logic, reason and fairness, that's something that's uh, very against public health. It's very anti-science.
1: Carnivale thought he could get around the county closing his gym with a pop-up in the parking lot. He was wrong. Police soon arrived to re-arrest him and his wife, Gillian. The couple faced the possibility of six months in prison.
2: Gillian and Mike join me now, along with their attorney, Corey Strohler.
1: In May also, 2021, the their case still pending, the Carnivales appeared on Fox News with host Laura Ingram.
2: Mike, I want to start with you. You've been arrested three times over the masks.
1: It's hard to
4: believe, isn't it, Laura?
2: No, I just like I can't even believe this, was, this is the United States of America when I'm hearing this. What happened?
1: Luckily for them, they had a fairy godmother in the form of Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, who joined the show with some good news. I'm glad you have Mike and Jillian on, and I'm also
0: glad to be on to be able to say that uh, effective tomorrow morning, I'm going to sign a reprieve under my constitutional authority. And then, when our clemency board meets in the coming weeks, uh, we'll issue uh, pardons not only for Mike and Jillian, but for any Floridian uh, that may have uh, outstanding infractions for things like mass and social distancing. The fact.
1: Pardoning is the is live on TV was a characteristic move from. Guy Governor DeSantis, who's used the pandemic to loudly proclaim his lib-owning credentials.
0: Friends, legislators, and Floridians, lend me your ears. We will not let anybody close your schools. We will not let anybody close your businesses. And we will not let anybody take your jobs.
1: It's worked. If you take Donald Trump out of the equation, he's leading many polls of who Republicans want to be their next presidential candidate. Florida did have a stay-at-home order, but it was brief, a month from early April 2020. Time and again, DeSantis overruled more cautious county leaders, using executive orders to not only lift fines and convictions against those who, like the Carnivales, broke COVID rules, but also reopen businesses and scrap restrictions.
0: Together, we have made Florida the freest state in these United States.
1: He's recently backed a bill which would remove education funding from Democratic counties that kept mask mandates in schools.
0: While so many around the country have consigned the people's rights to the graveyard, Florida has stood as freedom's vanguard.
1: Florida's pandemic is a head-scratcher for liberals. DeSantis's belligerent anti-restriction approach, plus Florida's elderly population, seemed like a surefire recipe for disaster. Too many Floridians have died, over 71,000, according to the CDC. But its confirmed death rate, 320 per 100,000 people, is the country's 18th highest. Nothing to be proud of, but no worse than some states that were much stricter. All over the world, leaders had to make a tough call, balancing protecting health with protecting freedom. In Florida, DeSantis favored the latter and shouted loudly about it. That Florida didn't do as badly as some feared suggests perhaps the choice wasn't so binary. Charlotte, often over the past two years, the debates about what the right public policy are and America's political response to COVID-19 have played out through the lens of journalists and other commentators looking at what Ron DeSantis was doing in Florida. What do you think, looking back now, the the lessons we can draw from what happened in Florida are?
2: I remain a bit confused by the epidemiological data, to be honest. I think the political lessons are much more clear, which are that he saw an opportunity to distinguish himself on an issue that was popular with his base, and he just absolutely went for it. And both while Donald Trump was president and since Joe Biden has taken over the White House, Ron DeSantis continues to kind of carve out this role as a more Trumpy Trump acolyte. And I think it's been hugely effective for him. As for the the data, you know— I don't know what to make of it. Idris, do you have a view of whether you think that his approach was proven right by Florida being more in the middle of the pack?
3: Um, I think people who have tried to make grand projections have always been embarrassed. People thought initially that Florida was going to be a disaster. A lot of people were writing things saying that Ron DeSantis would have blood on his hands effectively. Um, There was a period in which basically that didn't happen. There was a news cycle in which people said that people owe Ron DeSantis an apology. Then there was a wave, and they said, no, we were right. And, you know, it's, it's flip-flop. And people used to think that California was doing this amazing job. And, of course, that backfired as well. So I think it's hard to attribute malfeasance to single actors. Um, what's interesting to me is two things. One is that I think America has been incredibly divided about attitudes to masking and vaccines, by party in a way that really no other country that I know of has, I think maybe Brazil would be the closest uh, with Bolsonaro. A lot of that is due to Trump. And if you look at it in the early days of the pandemic, you can break down sort of county death rates by um, presidential vote. And you see the very first phase when it hit New York, the virus was severest in dense blue places. And since then, it's basically completely reversed. The Trumpiest counties are the ones that have seen high death rates and have continued to see them for almost a year. And that's it's very largely attributable to the uh, substantial vaccine hesitancy among Republicans, which I think is is owed to you know this sort of climate of, of polarization that started with Donald Trump, but that has clearly become very uh, effective and very motivating for, for Republicans. And that, to me, is kind of a astonishing feature of the American experience with the pandemic.
2: Yeah, it's kind of funny. If you think back to the beginning of 2020, it was right when the presidential Election was really taking off, the campaign was really taking off. If you had given Americans any issue on which they could disagree, like cheese versus pepperoni pizza, you would have had each side talking about the degradation of American values of the other side for choosing cheese versus pepperoni. And so if you have something that literally shuts down the entire global economy, shuts down all your schools, it's not particularly surprising that there was a polarized response to it. Nevertheless, the way that that has played out over the past two years, and I think the degree to which America really stands alone to your point in having death rates that are linked with political party is remarkable.
1: I agree with that. One of the things that I think has been striking over the past couple of years is there always seems to me an element of theatricality to America's partisan divide to your example about pepperoni versus cheese. And one of the questions that COVID-19 posed was whether in the time of an actual crisis, you know, a real domestic crisis, those sorts of things would be put aside and, you know, people who are incentivized to fight partisan wars would sort of lay down their weapons and that didn't happen and America didn't pull together. And so I suppose what I had hoped might be a slightly phony war turned out to be a very real one. On the lessons of Florida, I think one of the things that's really difficult here looking at individual American states is that obviously Americans can move between states and when we compare death rates you know, in America or in American states with different European countries or different countries in, in the West. More often than not, those places had a unified national response. But it's really hard to isolate, you know, Ron DeSantis' public policy choices in Florida or, you know, Andrew Cuomo's in New York, because people can move, you know, pretty freely between them. And so I just think there's a limited extent to which those public policy levers kind of worked in America compared with countries that are not federal countries even so florida is a particularly fascinating example of all sorts of important trends in american politics and our colleague alexandra Suich bass who's a frequent flyer on checks and balance has a special report on florida coming out in a few weeks time and i expect we'll have her on the podcast to talk about that soon so if florida interests you stay tuned as they used to say in radio stations i think We'll be back in a moment to ask what lessons America can learn from how it handled the COVID 19 pandemic. Tamara Jilks Bohr is The Economist's US policy correspondent, and she wrote a piece taking stock of the COVID 19 outbreak recently. Something that she didn't fit into that piece, but which we talked about, are some studies that looked at how prepared America was for a pandemic before one actually arrived.
5: Our Economist Intelligence Unit created an index called the Global Health Security Index. And it basically looked at over 190 countries throughout the world and ranked them according to their preparedness for a pandemic. And unsurprisingly, at the time, the US ranked first, and it ranked first in most categories. But at the same time that America was being ranked highly for pandemic preparedness, we also knew that we would not be as ready as we would probably hope. There was a simulation conducted in 2019 called Crimson Contagion. And in this simulation, a flu like virus in which there is no vaccine comes from China to Chicago and spreads throughout the United States from there. And in this simulation, it became clear that America was not ready. And many of the things that this simulation predicted are eerily similar to what happened during the actual pandemic. It's not surprising that we didn't do well based on that simulation. But what is surprising is that we underperformed compared to many of our peer nations.
1: And the big one, why was that? Was that a failure of politics in America? Or was it a failure of American society? Was it a bit of both? I mean, there's a libertarian economist called Alex Tabarrok, at George Mason University he has a phrase about covid he says that first american government failed and then american society failed i mean the early failures in government were the cdc was bad with testing you know infamously its tests were delayed at a, at a crucial moment the US, despite having this, you know, fantastic infrastructure for diagnostics, just seemed really bad at processing tests quickly enough early on, there wasn't enough protective equipment, etc. And then kind of American society failed in the sense that many Americans ultimately didn't seem to be prepared to make the kinds of sacrifices that would have been needed in order to keep this virus under control. So looking back over the past two years, how do you see this? Do you see it as a kind of politics, public policy failure? Or do you see it as a shining a light on some sort of fairly ugly things about American society.
5: So while America ranked highly overall for uh, pandemic preparedness, and even for having a robust healthcare system, within that index, America ranked 183rd for healthcare access. So it was acknowledged before the pandemic that healthcare access would be a big concern. And of course, we can see how that played out um, in many ways. So for example, Healthcare capacity was an issue, hospital capacity, obviously, um, worker shortages, et cetera. But also, we learned through the pandemic how important it is to have a healthcare system in which people have a relationship to the medical profession and have a relationship to medical professionals. And that was really clear when we saw vaccine hesitancy gain control. It's hard for me to imagine that we have such a vaccination problem if the majority of Americans had a strong relationship with a medical professional that they knew from the time they were a child or who they respected and trusted, it'd be hard to imagine that they would then tell that same doctor no to getting vaccinated.
1: Do you think on one level, the pandemic has revealed something that we already knew about America compared with other rich nations, which is just that American society overall seems more willing to tolerate, you know, more risk, more deaths, frankly, you know, thousand people die every year from um, gun injuries. And yet that's, you know, of course, many Americans are in favor of more extensive gun control. But overall, you know, that gun control doesn't exist. So in some senses, it's a kind of revealed preference, um, albeit, you know, I'd argue maybe a kind of failure of America's political institutions to deal with that. But you could extend that to other areas, you know, high levels of death from things like heart heart disease, which are tough to prevent, but are, you know, are treatable, could, could perhaps be prevented.
5: Americans do seem to have have more willingness to engage with risk and to accept that some people are going to be at risk. My hunch is that that may have to do with our sense of individualism. And, you know, if you plan your life accordingly and if you just do the right thing, you will avoid... Getting hurt or killed by, you know, if you lock up your guns, for example, you won't have to deal with gun violence. If you um, are responsible, you won't get into a car accident, things like that. But I do want to highlight Americans tend not to be proactive when it comes to preventing certain things. And that includes putting money towards preventing health emergencies before the emergency presents itself. So it's Difficult often to convince the nation that we need to use tax dollars to prevent a disease. But when it's happening, it's a bit easier, not always easy, but a bit easier to then get the money to do that. And that is something that's interesting about American society that many of the public health officials I've spoken with say is unique to American society, where we often have to be presented with the problem, really smacked in the face with the problem before we're willing to put the dollars toward it.
1: Idris, let's try and look forward a little bit here. The Biden administration is trying to get funding from Congress for pandemic preparedness. You would have thought this is an opportune moment to ask for that. How's that going? It hasn't gone well. Democrats have been unable to agree
3: on how exactly it should be funded. And it seems like, uh, you know, they want to fund some of the preparedness efforts at a lower level than the White House requested. There have been a lot of folks who have been arguing that uh, the CDC needs something like a uh, epidemiological prediction center, sort of like we have with weather. But, uh, you know, that at this moment seems like it, it might not happen. Obviously, a bit of prevention is is a lot more cost effective than having to deal with a full-blown pandemic down the line. So it might ultimately be self-defeating.
2: I agree with that. And one of the things I'm really struck by in looking at some of the ideas for how America might be better prepared for the next pandemic is how there are solutions, there are fixes that would help with pandemic pre- preparation, but are also just things that people have wanted for a long time and would make America work better, period, in my opinion. So, for instance, there's no real good childcare system in America. And so when things shut down or when one person is sick within school etc it just has these ripple effects these economic ripple effects that have an impact on adults ability to work in a way that's really damaging the problem of nursing that we saw through the pandemic where you had real extreme cases of burnout you have a shortage of healthcare workers and really a misallocation of healthcare workers time where people are doing chores or paperwork in a way that's just completely nonsensical frankly bad testing and surveillance system data collection all this stuff is Things that we've known for a while is problematic, but were particularly highlighted in the pandemic. And then I'm, I realize I'm saying some things that are not related directly to healthcare, but I think are relevant. Which is that you've seen this enormous uh, quit rate among teachers coming out of the pandemic, and part of that is because it's a really hot labor market, and they know that they're undervalued, which they clearly are. And part of it is because the way that the school systems are inflexible. And I think it was really hard for teachers to feel like they had the support that they needed. And I don't really think that strict, strict rules around keeping schools open or closed are necessarily always what's most important for a teacher to feel safe and supported in a classroom. And there are other metrics, including higher pay and professional development and additional assistance that that broadly I think teachers should have available to them. And I bring these up just to say that there are these long-running problems within American society and within American institutions that really frayed over the course of the pandemic and were revealed to be quite weak, even though we always knew that they were. And I'm not particularly optimistic about prospects for fixing them, but perhaps the acute nature of some of these problems at least trains some people's attention. Um, I'm interested in some of the different states that are thinking more seriously about the healthcare worker shortage that has been evident for a while and people in healthcare have been talking about for a very long time. But now you have more attention to trying to uh, have different recruitment efforts, trying to expand training for healthcare workers. I think that's an, an example of things that are kind of going in the right direction and hopefully you'd want to see scaled up more broadly.
1: There are also a whole category of things that people said would change forever or may have been problems created by COVID-19 or revealed by COVID-19 that actually turned out not to exist. So. There were a whole load of articles I remember reading on why African-Americans were unlikely to get their vaccination rates up because of historical suspicions of the federal government and the you know kind of awful past of medical experimentations on unwilling African-American participants. Actually, look now and the vaccination rate, there's no gap in terms of race. That's interesting to me, although there is a gap in terms of mortality. Another one, I mean, there was some quite overheated opinions, I think, about what the pandemic would mean for big cities in America. And certainly just, you know, judging on the evidence of Idris's cab ride this morning and my casual observations of New York City, I think, you know, predictions of the decline of the great American city hastened by COVID seems to have been, there were many articles written and um, many talking heads on TV talked about how COVID would change several things forever. And I you know it has changed some things in a meaningful way, but I think in some ways that was overdone. Joe Biden
3: thought that this would be a moment where he could, you know, substantially rebuild society in in a grand sort of Lyndon Johnson kind of way. And uh, that hasn't happened. And I think that the long run consequences are not going to be substantial reforms like he thought we, we might have had on child care and health care and all these other things. But it's going to be more modest things, things that states can do almost unilaterally, like expand the number of people who can, you know, enter medical schools or try to make their cities a bit more attractive. It's not going to be the sort of grand reorientation of American society that Roosevelt managed to do after the Great Depression. It's not that it doesn't seem like it's going to be that kind of crisis.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm not sure, given where the Democratic Party is, given the amount of infighting that you see, even on the measures that you described a moment ago for the next COVID plan, the notion that the best ideas are going to come out of Washington, I'm a little skeptical of at the moment. So maybe we'll see interesting policy experimentation among states. I don't know. Well, we did see
1: some interesting policy experimentation, right? The direct cash transfers, which, as you've written, Idris, reduce child poverty markedly in America. And so even though those are not going to be renewed by Congress, it seems, we do now have some evidence about what works when it comes to poverty reduction that we didn't have before, you know, what works in the real world and at scale. And maybe at some point down the line, some different Congress will be able to work with that. All right, thanks. Before I let you both go, I have a quiz, and it's very exciting to have you both in front of me here. It feels like I feel like it's a proper game show host. The first use of the word coronavirus in The Economist was in April 2003 in a piece about the SARS outbreak. We explained that a coronavirus belongs to a family of viruses that can cause, among other things, the common cold in humans. Question one. In 1841, President William Henry Harrison died from a severe cold which many say he caught when he gave his inauguration speech without wearing a coat. He was succeeded by his vice president, John Tyler. But the succession process wasn't formally set in place until the passing of the 25th Amendment. In what year? It's after
3: Roosevelt, so I think like 1946 something.
1: It's after FDR, sure.
2: This is when I usually order my groceries, so...
1: It was 1967, in fact, the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963, being the impetus to codify the line of succession. So, Charlotte, you can continue ordering your groceries, at parity at the moment. Under the 25th Amendment, the vice president is first in line to succeed. The Speaker of the House is second. Who are third, fourth and fifth? Um, sorry, the
2: Speaker of the House is second.
3: President pro tempore is, I think, after that. Correct. And
2: and then how many more people do we need to list?
3: Two more, please. I think it might be the Treasury Secretary somewhere, maybe fifth.
2: Oh, that's uh, a good idea.
3: Secretary of
1: State or Defense? I think you guys did pretty well there. Third is indeed the president pro tempore of the Senate, who's the most senior senator in the majority party. That's currently Patrick Leahy. Fourth is the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken. And fifth is the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen. So there's a pretty deep bench there. I'd feel comfortable with Janet Yellen being president. You guys did extremely well on that one. So congratulations. It's very nice to see you in person. Look forward to doing it like this again soon. Yeah, it'd be great. Me too. Thank you to our producer, Harriet Noble, and our sound engineer, Nicola Rofast. Thanks also to Stevie Hertz for her help with this episode. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week.